Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today's guest is Anum Sitar, a poet and junior at College of Worcester, and she's going to be introducing us to her vision for poetry and vision for herself as a rock star poet. And by the end of the interview, she has me a believer. So for that reason, I'm introducing this interview with the song Believer by Imagine Dragons. And then we're going to take a brief moment to listen to that song and then go to our interview or co- a conversation coming up soon. So I hope you'll stay tuned for the whole conversation where Anum will present her vision for poetry and her vision of herself, a vision that will inspire us all. Thank you.
All right, so we're here with the Noom Sitar, uh, poet, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, poetry and our journey towards poetry. Um, so let's start off with the first question, that uh, where were you born and where did you live most of your life? Um, I was born in Karachi in Pakistan, and I've lived there for all of my life, actually, and I've come to the United States. It's only been two years for college. I go to the College of Worcester, and I'm a junior, and I'm studying English. That's my major. Good, good. So uh, tell us a little bit about some of your early memories of uh, living in Karachi, uh, some things that come out to you that maybe brought you on the path uh, where you are today in poetry or some of your early memories of poetry or did you have any uh, exposure to poetry there and what was it like? Um, I think I used to read a lot of books on poetry because my mom would you know tell me to read these books written by British authors so typical poets like you know Percy Bysshe Shelley or William Wordsworth were always part of my life so yeah a lot of it was developed like a lot of the writing techniques and stuff was developed at home and I also had a lot of tutors that would come in at home you know just to help me with my craft so yeah and I think things were more refined once I actually took up poetry classes at college so yeah uh -huh. that's how things kind of started okay and what were your parents you said I mentioned about your mother's interest so what was your parents doing or what was their background as in like what they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> my dad's an investor and my mom's a homemaker. She stayed with us. She took care of us. She made us sit at the study table for six hours or so until we got it right. That's so, yeah. good, yeah. So when you came to uh, the College of Worcester, um, what was your experience in the first few months or years? Year? Uh, did you experience any culture shock or what was the, what was the experience of being moving to a Midwestern town and... Um, no, yeah. I think the college is fantastic. It's a mm -hmm. beautiful location, but it's just um, very, very rural. And I grew up in a city. Yeah. So that that shift was a little weird. You know, you're driving and you see potato farms and cornfields and you're like, oh, my God, where am I? Yeah. And then I called my dad and he's like, oh, that's great. That means you'll study. There's nothing to distract you. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that, that was a, a, sh a shock. But beyond that, I love the college. I love the classes. I love the one-to-one -one interaction you get with your professors. Uh -huh. You know, it's a small student body. There are not a lot of people there. Yeah. So there's more focus on you as an individual, which I think is great. So I think I picked the right college. Good, good. And uh, what are you majoring in or what are you studying? What's your focus? Like I mentioned, um, I'm majoring in English, uh -huh. and my focus is more towards the creative writing section. So probably after I graduate, I would want to go to a Master of Fine Arts program, preferably in New York, mm -hmm. simply because I know the place better, but yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that you were refining your craft in, uh, in College of Worcester. Uh, can you go a little bit more into what that entails or uh, how, you, uh, how you've been co coached or how, you know any classes that you've had that... Help you refine your class, refine your craft. Um, I took a advanced poetry writing class with my professor Daniel Bourne, and um, that's how we kind of started. And then he kind of took an interest in what I write, and we've had this one-to-one -one relationship where he acts like my mentor, uh -huh. and he gives me feedback on my poems. And what I think is great is that I need very little feedback now because I've kind of learned how to do it on my own so it's like oh the little birdie's leaving the nest uh, he's happy about it very happy about it yeah. and I'm happy about it too so that's good and I hope you know that mentorship continues even after I graduate yeah so yeah so I'm gonna take a moment to read why don't you read a poem that you wrote 
Uh, and yeah. then uh, we'll continue the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So this poem's named Trust, and it was published in the Gray Sparrow Journal by Diane Smith. And okay, here goes nothing. Trust. Between what is said and not meant, and what is meant and not said, most of lo love is lost by Khalil Gibran. A lonely white-tailed wildebeest began to question his decision of asking a timid yellow-billed oxpecker to leave her chattering flock and assist him to strag bot flies from his thickened hide. And though the brindled bovine tolerated her on his backside, the zealous bird got carried away and tore open all his wounds to drink from them until she was bloated with his fresh blood. So when she alerted him of a slow approaching poacher, a striped antelope only turned his long, narrow ears away, and then even more blood was spilt from his scorned heart. So, yeah. Good, good. Thank you. So, um, I know in, in that work and many works, you have very vivid imagery of uh, sometimes derived or taken or um, using uh, fairy tale and uh, mythological aspects. So, you talk a little bit about how that evolved or how that naturally organically came about. Because in this one, you have like the you know, it's like a little ox pecker uh -huh. and this little bovine creature. Yeah. Um, a lot of people think there's this fairy tale aspect to it, but that's mm -hmm. how I kind of started. I started reading um, poems by Annie Sexton, but there's so much that you can extract from fairy tales. I think uh -huh. I've kind of evolved a bit to the point where I'm like researching about the subjects that I'm going to write about. So like if I'm writing about ox peckers or, you know, antelopes or different animals that they, you know, scab their wounds out of it's like i'm gonna go and read about them so it's more like a biological research before i actually mm. pen it down yeah so. it has a kind of almost like a mythological feel to it though i mean i, I mean think that's that, that kind of comes yeah it comes across that's good and you did some research into kind of what they what was the research like kind of physically or, or where they come from or like like it should be real it should be real you yeah. know it's not like there's there's random birds sitting on this you know bull-like creature yeah. it actually happens yeah. in real life so that just gives it more, you know, it makes it more authentic as a poem. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Good, good. So uh, go a little bit more into, like, you were talking a little bit about some of, some of the writers you explored, Anne Sexton, you mentioned. Uh, is there any other writers that influenced you over the course of your years? A lot of people would think that I like Sylvia Plaid, but uh -huh. no, I think <laughs> it's... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not being a very good feminist, but um, I like Ted Hughes and his work because it's it's mm -hmm. more concrete he takes the subject i feel like he researches about it then he puts in how he feels about it or he like you know adds in his emotions and the poem just develops and i think that's very important um i think i read you know like i don't have a specific poet that i like mm -hmm. it's more like you know if i want to read a specific mm -hmm. genre like if i want to do british romanticism i'm gonna go and like find all the books i can and then just focus on the text rather than the poet and their life because that's mm -hmm. not important and if there's a particular style i like then i'd kind of like find out okay who wrote it and then go back because okay. you know there's so much that you can use in terms of craft once you've understood the craft of writing poetry then you need to put in your own voice so you, so you need to block out everybody from it which yeah. is what i try to do i just try to extract things from the text and then put my voice in it so you mentioned some of the techniques of craft and uh you mentioned that you're doing some research to make it real and make it authentic and uh if you go a little bit more into your craft and kind of what goes into writing a poem uh like how to craft your the techniques of craft when you're sitting down to write a poem um, I try to focus more on structure, so you would have like couplets coming in, you know, probably, or, y you know, there would be 
you know, sonnet or maybe a sestina. I try to focus on form, which I feel is very outdated now because mm -hmm. everybody's just focusing on free verse. Yeah. But I feel that we need that structure to make it more academic. Yeah. You know, um, I try to make, I, I, a lot of people, you know, want to add in the politics to their poems or they try to like connect it with real life. I like to, you know, deal with mythological themes simply because I feel like it can reach a wider audience, especially children, because mm. I enjoy it when kids read my stuff. Like there were a couple of high school kids from the Deltona High School in Florida that published my work in Deltona Howell and having that feedback coming in from those kids telling me, oh, we thought that this poem was connected with the Greek legend, but you're like, oh, you know, I was just hanging out with this guy. I didn't yeah. see the Greek legend in it. Oh, you know, good. that insight that those kids give you is, is precious. And I don't think people that, you know, run college magazines or university magazines could give me that insight, which is why I try to write poems that are slightly different from mainstream. Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, good, good. Yeah, it's nice to hear that you're interested in form and structure. And a lot, some of the poets I've interviewed are more interested in free verse and they kind of moved away from uh, the kind of structure of the things or of the sonnet and the Sistine, all these kinds of things. But it's interesting that there is the reader's feedback and, um, you know, the, the getting the, the insights and such. So you mentioned one thing, and also if you could talk a little bit about the publications, how your process in publishing, and and you mentioned that the editors don't give us, I give you feedback, but just the uh, selecting publications and targeting publications, or how was your process in that? Like how I've been dealt with with publishers. And you can stuff go out there, you like yeah, whatever you'd like to talk about. I mean, it's not as glamorous, really. I mean, I work on the collection, I send them out, and I mm. wait, and then suddenly, you know, a bunch of editors come in and say, oh, we loved your work. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, my professors would not see an environmental awareness or some aspect to a particular poem, but another editor would, and you'd be like, yeah. oh, I saw that, and I'm like, yes, thank you. Oh, good, so, yeah. yeah, you know, having feedback from people that are just not connected in the academia, people that you really don't know, mm -hmm. and then them coming into you and saying, hey, you know, you're good, keep trying, it, it's, it's, it's a blessing, and I feel really happy that I have it, so, yeah, mm -hmm. they've all been very kind. Yeah, good, good, that's great. <laughs> so, you mentioned about Brooklyn Poets, uh, You've been associated with Brooklyn Poets uh, by coming and reading with them, and we can talk a little bit about kind of how your, how your experience has been coming between Ohio and New York and coming to readings and how you connect with the community. Um, I think it was my second semester as a freshman, and I did Daniel Bourne's poetry class, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, you know, take it and make it a career or try to make it a career so I call my dad up I'm like listen dad we're going to New York for a month and in the end we did end up going to New York for a month and they stayed at a hotel and I would go um, to one of the apartments that Brooklyn Poets had um, there was this lady called Patty Greenberg that was hosting us all there and I had a class um, on how to write sonnets and you know, Sistinas and things like that. And then I would just go off to the readings and Jason Co. kind of like directs the whole thing. And he's been very, very nice. You know, I had my flight schedules coming in. Sometimes it would clash, but he'd make sure that I would come in and read my poems, yeah. you know, and I made friends along the way. And it's good to have, you know, that little um, cliche, like club kind of a thing with your like high school kind of poets, you know, yeah. where everybody just knows each other and you're just doing things. And that's good, yeah. I feel happy. It's like having another family in New York City you can lean on to. Yeah, that's great. It's great. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> yeah. oh. 
Okay, so why don't we read one uh, sonnet then? Why don't you read a sonnet that you have an example of? Cool. Um, this is another myth about the garden, and it was first published in Volume 1 of the American Journal of Poetry, Margie, by Robert Nasrin and Jim Wilson. Another myth about the garden. Her husband thought of her a sturdy oak, which would bear the mighty blow of his axe, though she, a mere sapling, a toothpick stuck in his teeth, could not bear his reprimands. Abusive, he tried to pluck her blossoms to fill his empty vase with their fragrance. Thorny, she bloomed for her own happiness and struggled to avoid a flower pot. Then tired at last, she showed her thorns to him and teased him with rose hips beyond his reach. But with one swing, she collapsed at his feet, and then in his garden outstretched she lay. He tilled her yellowing leaves into mulch and prepared the soil for another bush. Thank you, thank you. So, um, also I wanted to get into is about kind of like your... Um, a little bit more into your upbringing and uh, religious, did you have any religious uh, education? And if so, how does that play in? Because it conjures to me with the garden as kind of these uh, biblical or, you know, mythological kind of, uh, you know, where we think of the Garden of Eden and such, although it's not necessarily referenced, but just kind of sparked to me that idea. So did you have any religious upbringing or? I mean, religion is such a personal and private matter, uh -huh. but um, I was raised Muslim, uh -huh. I still am Muslim. Uh -huh. um, when I write my poems, I do, you know, I am aware of biblical references such as the Garden of Eden, uh -huh. you know, and subconsciously that might play into this poem, but mm -hmm. it's not really the case, actually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm aware, but it's not me deliberately you know shoving yeah. it right in like oh, sure sure of bang, course bang, yeah, bang. yeah, so, yeah. i think that definitely it conjures up that image though for me uh perhaps since i had i think in terms of religion if you're looking at it like how my how religious views would connect with poetry i feel like i tend to look at more you know christian themes and uh -huh. ideologies rather than islamic themes when it comes to poetry and that too very subconsciously yeah because i went to a um all-girls catholic school for a good 13 years of my life uh -huh. you know before coming into college and a lot of that plays into my poems but not so much islam really yeah it's uh january of 2018 so it's kind of that new year you know new opportunities uh what are some of the things you're planning or did you have any resolutions or uh objectives for this year I mean, like in terms of work or just generally? Generally for yourself and as a person and, and for your writing. I think to be more patient as a human being and in terms of my writing, um, just to keep working on it and polishing it. And mm. the next event is probably to go to the AWP in Tampa, Florida. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's all my plans. And to graduate from college. Yeah. You know, make your parents yeah. proud. You know, the yeah. one reason why they brought you here. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned doing an MFA. Kind of what's what's if you could project into uh, you know five years from now and or ten years from now, like what would you see yourself doing or being or what would be the uh, what would be your objective to to get to if you could <laughs> kind of envision a future for yourself? Where would you be or what would, what would be going on? If I'm not working at McDonald's, <laughs> um, I, I see myself in an MFA program, but I also feel that um, 
if I just become stronger as a writer, maybe I'd be able to take two or two or maybe a year off where I'm just focusing intensely on my writing. <clears throat> because I just know a lot of people. Uh -huh. And I feel that it would be better to focus on that than go to a school where you're just like trained to follow, you know, that one pathway that everybody follows. But yeah, for sure, graduate school. Yeah, but I mean like... Um like getting a book out or something? No, like give you a vision time, what, you're, what, what you would be like or what, what, what kind of future, what are you kind of aiming for or as far as career or, you know, after graduate school? Like the big dream? Yeah. If you're going to have anything in the world. The big crazy dream would yeah. be the, to be a poet laureate of the country. <laughs> yeah. Yes. To be America's poet, to win the hearts of the American people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Through my poetry. Good, good. No, it's good. It's good. I think it's good to, um, you know, connect with more readers and have the, um, generally speaking, have your poetry being out there for more and more people to read and, and connect with. What would you say drives you uh, as a writer as far as, like, uh, thematically? My relationships with people. Uh-huh. You know, um, when, when you're living on your own as a foreign student, you, you don't have your parents or anyone else. You know, you're just on your own. And the way your relationships are with people you know impacts you a lot so when i have intense relationships with people a lot of that ends up in the form of a poem mm -hmm. and that's kind of how it is yeah would you say you're happy right now or would you say you're what would you say you are with your life where would you say you are with the in general with the with life in general uh -huh. i think i think i'm okay you know i'm just a regular college kid uh-huh you know with little frills here and there <laughs> you know but um I'm happy. Yeah. Is there anything you're lacking or anything that you feel like you're pursuing or incomplete about? I mean, I, I, I do feel that need to have more, mm -hmm. you know, and I just think I just wish that things would, you know, speed up a little bit, yeah. you know, because you're just sitting there waiting for a magazine to like respond to you or you're just waiting for something to happen. But I know that everything takes you know, it's all steps, yeah. little steps. And I, I'm happy that it's like, you know, every drop of water makes a pond. Yeah. And I'm happy that at least there's a pond and it's, you know, growing and eventually there'll be frogs, yeah. you know. And uh, what would it feel like for having, having, what would it feel like internally to have all that, to have that pond with the frogs? In it? Like uh, internally? Yeah, I, internally? I would just feel satisfied, you know, yeah. like I'm not really doing this. Um, to become a professor or to have a teaching job or to, you know, earn money or anything. I'm really doing this to, you know, uh, feed my soul, if you have yeah. to, like, use something like that. Yeah, like, just to feel good about myself that, hey, you know, I can write and people like what I write. People like how I think. Mm -hmm. You know, when you write poetry, it's basically your thoughts. It's your character. Yeah. So if people like that, they're just basically saying, I like you as a human being. And I think that's yeah. a very rewarding feeling. So the connection with the other people is the is the primary yeah. uh, um, driving force, you would say. Yeah, and uh, just to understand, like you know, the ideal state is to feel, uh, or the ideal pursuit is to feel satisfaction, the feeling of satisfaction that you. And what would that be prompted by? Just by uh, connecting with people, right? It's like you're contributing something to the world, uh -huh. to a wider audience. 
Yeah. And I feel that poetry can do that. I also feel that poems need to be more intellectual. They need to like engage younger minds. And I feel that maybe my poems can. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really don't like it when people put in swear words in their poems or when people mm-hmm. like explicitly talk about sex or things that, you know, a limited audience wouldn't be able to engage in. Or when people just talk about their personal experiences like, oh, yeah, you know, I was in New York and I met this girl and the car was driving past us and, you know, I kissed her at like the yeah, end, yeah. you know, things like that. And um, I wanted something different. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you would like meet really established poets and they would talk about how in their poem there's this um, guy who's staring at a girl's cleavage and the mm. moral of the whole poem is that don't stare at the girl's cleavage. <laughs> but then you're like, yeah. aren't you the one staring at the cl- you know the girl's cleavage? Because how did the poem come about? Yeah. You know, so it's, 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 it's kind of like when you write a poem, you're basically standing naked in front of the audience. Yeah. You're like, hey, look at me. This is exactly who I am. So you need to make sure that you people like what you do you know that you're respected for it and i want that to happen so the authenticity comes across but sometimes we're seeing or perceiving something that's inauthentic about it would you say yeah like it's you there's so much that you can hide there's not a lot that you can do you know you can throw there's just you know a limited number of metaphors you can throw in and you, if you want people to respect you, you know your work, they need to respect you as an individual, and that means you need to have a lot of character building mm. in you. And I feel that poets that have actually made it out there just appeal to a universal audience because there was some goodness to their work. And I'm not saying that it needs to be very religious or very you know clean or something, but just something that makes everybody happy. Yeah, you know, mm. like not that typical New Yorker's poem, something yeah. my parents can even like something Mm. your parents could even like yeah you know this one is this one's called but it's only a fairy tale and it was published in the oddball magazine because it's such an odd poem and it's broken into three acts act one do not shed my leaves i'll be scorched in the sun the trees her daughters wailed as the lumberjacks tore their parcels into shreds carry not their cherries and apples away how will they be adorned for their suitors the mother pleaded as the leather boots trampled on her daughter's fallen fruits. Then one of the men lit a match and set the forest ablaze. Act 2. The mad sticks pitied the mother who buried her head in her apron. They jumped out of the cardboard box and circled around her. Fear us not, we come to atone for our mistakes. Your misfortune is an unfinished fairy tale, and we will write its happy ending. Wiping the tears trickling down her face, the mother looked at them and said, To seek forgiveness for fueling the fire, you must assist me to bless an ailing child. For a grieving mother can only find relief through healing the sad heart of another. Then suddenly the mad sticks became aligned in rows, glued to the back of a broken hand mirror, to form the bristles of a brand new hairbrush. And then there's Act 3. There, sitting upright on the hospital bed, the mother saw a young boy whose hair was falling out. What have we here, a shorn sheep? Here's a hairbrush to shepherd those flocks. Convinced he was daydreaming again, because how was he to explain the stunted old woman talking to him by his bed? The boy brushed the few clumps left on his scalp and drifted off to sleep, only to wake up at home in his old bed, astounded by the canopy of hair that had sprung, like wild imaginings from his bald head. So, yeah. Thank you, thank you. 
So uh, I know we kind of started a little about about this about the fairy tale motif, and uh, if we go a little bit more into kind of what that means for you, and kind of give it a more whole picture of uh, how you connect with the idea of the themes of fairy tales, and if there's a specific fairy tale that really resonated with you. Um, but it's only a fairy tale is about a poem, as you can obviously tell, uh-huh. um, about a boy who has cancer. And, you know, since most cancer patients have their hair falling out, you know, he daydreams about this magical woman coming in, giving him a hairbrush so that his hair could grow again. Yeah. You know, and like the the mother who comes in is basically a symbol of Mother Nature herself, because when those lumberjacks destroyed the forest or killed her daughters, she feels that the only way, you know, she can heal herself is by healing the heart of another mother, you know, and... um when I wrote this poem, it's a strange poem, but I was just trying to copy Han Christian Anderson's technique. A lot of times, you know, he would talk about um, the ugly duckling or, you know, things like that, where, you know, there were very serious themes like illnesses and plagues, but he just, like, turned it into this fairy tale trope. And I'm trying to, like, use something as serious as cancer and try to, like, you know, make it into this fairy tale trope just to show how it's affecting our society today and how we need to, like, create this magical hairbrush, basically. Um, It's a controversial poem, which is why I kind of, like, titled it as But It's Only a Fairy Tale so that Mm. people just don't come and, like, strangle me, like, how (laughs) dare you? But, yeah, um, I just wanted to copy his technique of, like, taking very, very important issues and twisting it into a fairy tale so it's, like, the modern fairy tale. So, yeah, that's one of the techniques in that whole fairy tale theme. Good, good. And um, just to give you a bit, a little bit of a better idea, the, the listener has a little better idea of you as a person, um, uh, possibly like a, a, the ideal, you know? I mean, the ideal is like too big of a picture, but for now, I just feel like I think poetry needs to be fun. Uh huh. You know, um, a lot of academic institutions have just taken in the genre of poetry, which is a good thing because, you know, the craft is receiving a lot of support. Yeah. But there's no real creativity to it. I want poetry to be something that's fun. So, like, when I go out to poetry readings, I try to dress up, you know. Yeah. You know, I put in fascinators that have, like, maybe dirty butterflies on them, maybe something that's shaped of a swan, so it looks like there's an actual swan on my head. Then I have, like, designers like Dahlia McPhee, you know, giving me her dresses, you know, to go off. So I'm just trying to make it glamorous. Yeah. You know, because I feel that that stereotypical image of, oh, a poet is somebody that needs to go, you know, with you know, wears a checkered shirt, really baggy pants, goes off there and reads a poem. You know, that's not poetry. That's not art. I want to look like I represent the art that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, And I think that's important. And just to share with the listeners, you know, you come to the Forest Hills Queens Library uh, to be a featured reader, and you've come to many of the places to be featured, and as you are saying, dress part of that. You can talk a little bit about fashion and how it has influenced you. Um, I think fashion's influenced me positively. Um, when I went to the Queen's Library, I was trying to like pull off Princess Diana's <laughs> look with the whole yeah. gown thing. Um, I mean, I, I kind of see like how famous poets lived their lives. They were, it was very, very classy. I just want to get rid of this stereotype that, oh, the starving poet, or oh, the yeah. struggling poet, or oh, the college student yeah. who's trying to be a poet. You know, poets are like very very intelligent people that are just trying to like 
you know, take out the knowledge from academia and, you know, they're trying to give it out to the public. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that. So I don't mind, you know, making the extra effort to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Where you yeah. have like these poetry <coughs> pop icons. Basically, you need to make it, you need to attract people to listen to your poem. Like when I write, I think, okay, every poem should be worth, let's say $10,000. You know, like one poem should have enough worth. And for that, you need to like put in a lot of effort in developing that image of yourself so mm. that people that are just not interested in poetry, you know, the way you and I are and mm. everybody else would be attracted to it. You need mm. to market yourself and you need to sell yourself basically. Mm. And I'm trying to do that. Good, good. And uh, what are your ways of doing that? In other words, you have published, but you also use social media as a way to... I'm trying to balance the college life yeah. because and the underground poetry scene as yeah. well. And I feel like you need to have that balance of the two to make sure that you stand out. Yeah. But yeah, I think social media is a great platform. You like connect with different professors and people like, oh, I know you, I know you. And you like, oh. you know, learn where you stand. So that's good. So you're mentioning a little bit about kind of the vision for what I would interpret as like the the rock star kind of poet, um, you know, kind of the combination of what we perceive, well, at least in my story, I perceive as more of a rock star kind of a thing. The, the typical, stereotypical image of the, of the poet as being... It's very, very, you know, very serious, serious and yeah. very academic. I remember there yeah. was this one editor, uh, it's at, his name's Anthony Watkins from Better Than Starbucks. It's a little online magazine. Uh -huh. He's like, oh, you know, you're changing what we perceive poets to be. And you're like this young, new, hot poet. Yeah. And that's what I want to be, yeah. to be very honest. Um, I remember when I started writing poems and my dad's like, oh, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, dad, I want to be the sex symbol for poetry. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad's good. like, okay, good yeah. luck with it. Well, what I'm just trying to say is that it needs to be different. And I feel that if I'm yeah. that one pop of color yeah. out of all those black and gray shades there, yeah. I'm happy with it. Good, so, good. yeah. 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 I know there was one uh, book, the, the Princess Saves Herself, which is seems like very much in the lines of a vision of poetry as being combining the pop culture combining what we understand of like the rock star or the pop culture kind of the common denominator kind of a thing would you say that's where you're moving towards or i i think that's where i'm moving towards yeah. a lot of you know, yeah. my family members are like you know you're living this Madonna dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's important because, yeah. you know, if you want a type of art to survive, you need to, like, put your soul into it. And I feel like when, mm. you know, when Madonna or, you know, when other people were starting out way back in the 80s, yeah. you know, pop culture wasn't that mainstream. There wasn't people, you know, wearing dye, you know, stockings or, like, dyed colored hair and things yeah. like that. You know, Cindy Lauper started that. Yeah. And, like, lots of people started that. And I feel like we need to push poetry into something new and different. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. Good, good. So as far as, like, uh, pop culture goes, uh, your enjoyment, what do you enjoy? Or what do you go a little bit more into what you're... Um, I like to listen to a lot of 70s music, you know, um, ABBA, The Beatles, a lot of 80s. I, I look at my fashion choices based on very, very famous people from the 80s. Yeah. You know, the stereotypical Madonna, Michael Jackson, Cyndi Lauper, maybe even like um, Boy George, you know, everybody. Yeah. And I try to like incorporate that while bringing my own style into it as well. Mm. Because, you know, when you're going to a poetry reading, everybody just dresses very, very casually 
you know, what's the use of it when you suddenly have this crazy person out, suddenly people are engaged and they're more likely to like listen to your stuff also. Yeah. You know, and that image hits people, it sticks in their minds. Yeah. You know, like with me, I rather have one outfit that's like an art piece rather than have multiple, you know, regular outfits like jeans or shirts and things. Yeah. So I think that's important. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And just to let the viewers know, we're in uh lot New York Palace. We're kind of in this very um, high class place. I just I was taking it in as I was coming in and it's quite impressive. I mean, you know, it's definitely it's uh, this has not been the way most of my interviews have been going. So the atmosphere itself is very interesting and informs kind of you as a person and how your choices and goes along the lines of what you've been saying about the um, the the rock star poet and such. And I'm about to eat a chocolate-covered strawberry. Thank you very much for that. Uh, yep, we're here with chocolate-covered strawberries and the deluxe color suite, and it looks glamorous. <laughs> I, I think that's how it should be for any medium of art if you want to attract other people and gain that respect. Oh, and, and the dress is by Dahlia Magby, so thank you. Yeah. She's very kind. She gives me her dresses to wear. Oh, cool. So you mentioned a little bit about these 80s stars and Madonna and all that. Now, uh, did you, you were listening to this growing up or like what other, what other influences do you have as far as like Western culture goes and American culture goes growing up? Or childhood? Childhood in childhood, yeah. Um, as far as the 80s music goes, um, those were something that my dad would listen to a whole lot uh -huh. and he'd like play them in the car and I'd sit there. You know, listening to it all day. Yeah. So that's how it kind of yeah, <laughs> all day. All day. <laughs> so that's how it kind of like fed yeah. it itself yeah. into me. So yeah, yeah. I would listen to the '80s over anything else simply because it reminds me of my dad. Yeah. It's like a special father-daughter bond. Um, as far as American culture goes, I mean, American culture. I don't even feel like I've grown up in an American culture, and I don't feel that ever since I've come to the United States there was a culture shock either i just feel that i'm living the way i live and i like yeah, it yeah <laughs> so yeah. yeah but as far as 80s music goes yeah that's something my dad used to play a lot yeah so if you were to compile a, a manuscript or if you have a vision for a manuscript or a collection of poems what would be the spine or what would be the uh collecting the thematic uh consistency of it um I think my journey as a writer would be the theme uh -huh. and how i've evolved as one uh -huh. um and I think that would be what the collection would be based off because yeah. a lot of people um, put out their collections very quickly. You know, yeah. everybody has a chat book. Everybody yeah. has like five to six different books, but yeah. like who reads them? Maybe, you know, you can market your books off to universities where you're about to teach or you're going to teach or you already teach, but there's so much that you can do. So with me, I'm not in a hurry to like bring a book out. I'm more here to like refine my craft and like, you know, meet people outside the academic circle and just grow as a writer and as a person and collect all that. So when mm. I feel confident or when I feel that I've reached my main goal, I could go mm. back on all of it and make a collection. Okay, good, yeah. So, uh, but it seems to me that more, more important to you is the combination of bringing poetry a greater audience through its presentation of poetry. Would you say that's accurate? More or less. Yeah, and um, you were talking a little bit about the pioneers of poetry and how you envision yourself as someone who's in, and through the presentation of poetry, uh, you know, uh, bring that. We were talking a little bit about the rock star poet model, kind of pioneering that aspect and and bringing that 
element of glamour and too academic. You go into that, yeah. Maybe a vision for that. I just want to like combine both worlds together, mm-hmm. where you just have all that glamour, but that you know, it it should glitter, but it should be gold as well. Mm-hmm. And I feel that the academic section kind of provides the gold factor to it, whereas the glamour kind of just provides the glitter factor to it. Yeah. Um, which I think any college student that's interested in poetry should try to do. Uh-huh. It's kind of like taking the art form and trying to express it out to its fullest potential, which is what I'm trying to do. So yeah, in one way, I am trying to bridge that gap. And how do you define... Um a poet then what, what does that mean to you what is a poet and what, what would you say is the common perception of a poet or poetry and what is your kind of definition of poet and poetry poet you know poetry. some people would say a poet is like a prophet uh-huh. you know like how prophets bring out messages to guide people in and when I think about the modern day poet I really envision somebody that's extremely intelligent but is also well connected with people and therefore can use their messages to guide people with you know it's kind of like with a fast food restaurant if you have to like use a really lame example there's a lot of science that goes into it regardless of whether fast food is good for you or not and you know there's a whole business behind it but the presentation you know the way it's portrayed to the audience is in a very non-serious sometimes even you know like a family-like situation where they're trying to attract specific types of people. And I think poetry should be like that. You should put in the work, but the pres- presentation should be fun. Okay. Or at least engaging. Yeah, I mean, I think that, for me at least, it seems like, you know, in America today, there's a lot of anti-intellectual thread um, where there seems to be, you know, you have the... Most of the population seems to be kind of going against the kind of... Um, vision for you seem to be acting as a bridge toward between kind of having the robust vision for poetry but also having it accessible to the common you, you person know, like, you know like i don't want poetry to be something that's only read by english nerds yeah you know and it's not something that you know you sit at the table in undergraduate class or a graduate class and you pick up your books and then you read it all you know in a circle one line each person kind of a thing mm. i just want it to be very accessible that everybody's doing it um you know and that's only going to happen when you bridge that gap so yeah yeah and i think that this kind of thematic or this idea this vision of for poetry and for yourself as a poet uh, it does speak to the themes of the show that it's kind of the personal truth, connecting with the populace, uh, finding that empowerment in that, and um, you know being able to empower oneself and and, and the community. Yeah, which is basically so, yeah. the truth about myself. I mean, it, yeah. it just doesn't get more honest than this. So we'll end with um, just talking a little bit about. Now I mentioned to you uh, off the recording, but about like poets like Charles Bukowski. Yeah. Or, and things like that and how you know they these poets who may may have may have touched on what you're talking about like someone like Charles Bukowski seems to have touched on someone you're talking about but he was someone who was a heavy drinker and a yeah like I don't want to be the gambler drinking person yeah I I mean I don't drink yeah so we talked a little bit about how that um, yeah so like if you want to create an image of a 21 year old girl that's writing poetry obviously Uh you can't have that Sylvia Plath image over and over again where she's like having mental problems and is in complete mental distress so when I look at myself as a 21 year old I'm like you know I want to be 
connected to the audience i want to be upbeat i want to have fun and while i'm having fun i want to connect people you know and make sure that they have fun too and i want to engage the audience with my lifestyle of what i consider art to be whether it's through social media whether it's through you know it's through meeting with you or whether it's in class mm. and yeah that's the image i want to create and that image is me it's yeah. just as truthful as that yeah so definitely showing yourself as part of that image is important to be able to be authentic and be truthful and all yeah. this kind of stuff and i agree with that and i think that's very good um <laughs> yay yeah I definitely admire that, you know? Um, thank you. Thank you. So we'll wrap up the interview, okay? Um, so did you have any closing thoughts or about that you mentioned about the female poet, the image of the female poet, the young female poet um, in the popular media, but also how you uh, see yourself and how you want to be seen? Um, is there any closing thoughts you want us to talk about, about how, how you're seen? Or how I've heard from some of the editors that poetry is a very male-dominated thing, and mm-hmm. that was quite surprising to yeah. me. So in relation to that, I would say that it's about time that young female poets kind of came out and expressed their voice, yeah. which has been like so subversive, like hidden. And, you know, having this crazy girl wearing crazy outfits, I guess, is the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. it definitely makes it more accessible and more enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> For a reading, people going to a reading. Um, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Thanks so much. Um, I would like to thank you, Vijay, for allowing me to read at the Queen's Library at Forest Hills and um, for allowing me to come over and be a guest at your show, which is very, very kind and sweet of you. And um, I'd like to thank my mom and my dad and my brother and my professor, Daniel Bourne, who's worked with me. I feel like I've won an award. Um, I'd also like to thank all the publications. So I just wanted to list them out. It's a little long, but here goes nothing. Um, I want to thank the American Journal of Poetry, Margie, Crack the Spine, the Taj Mahal Review, 521, an art and literary journal, Ragazine, Better Than Starbucks, the Florida Review, Grace Barrow, Oddball Magazine, the Artifact No Evo, Off the Coast, Strange Poetry, Between These Shores, Literary and Arts Annual, The Conceit Magazine, A New Ulster, The Cannon's Mouth, The Journal of Contemporary Anglo-Scandinavian Poetry, Wilderness House Literary Review, The Poetras Review, The Cadverine, Verbal Art, A Global Journal Devoted to Poets and Poetry, The Wayne Literary Journal, The Ibis Head Review, The Weekly Avocet, Every Sunday Morning, Poets Bridge, of course, Jason Coe and the entire Brooklyn Poets team. You guys have been great. Thank you for being like a family to me and the Tipton Poetry Journal. And I'd like to thank the College of Worcester for encouraging um, my craft. And, you know, um, I won the Wona Hicks Award at the college. So thank you guys for that. And yeah, that's about it. Let's call it a wrap. <laughs> thank <Good>. you. <laughs> great. Thank you. This ends the interview portion of the Truth to Power show. Now, in spirit of this interview, I'm going to be playing a song by Madonna, Like a Prayer. And at the end, I'll do some uh, reading from uh, Art is Experienced by John Dewey. Thanks. Please enjoy the song. Thank you.
This reading is from Art is Experienced by John Dewey. We have no word in the English language. Ambi includes what is signified by the two words artistic and aesthetic. Since artistic refers primarily to the act of production, and aesthetic refers to that of perception and enjoyment, the absence of a term designating the two processes take, taken together is unfortunate. Sometimes the effect is to separate the two from each other, to regard art as something superimposed upon aesthetic material, or upon the other side, the assumption that since art is process of creation, perception and enjoyment of it have nothing in common with the creative act. In any case, there is a certain verbal awkwardness in that we are compelled to sometimes use the term aesthetic to cover the entire field and something to limit the, that of receiving perceptual aspects of the whole operation. I refer to these obvious facts as preliminary to an attempt to show how the conception of consciousness experience um, as the perceived relationship between doing and undergoing enables us to understand the connection that art as production and perception and appreciation and enjoyment sustain to each other. Art denotes a process of doing or making. It's technical art. Art involves molding of clay, chipping of marble, casting of iron, etc. Um, every art does something with physical material, the body or something outside of the body, with or without the use of intervening tools, with a view to production of something visual, visual or audible or tangible. So Marx is the act of doing that the dictionary is usually defined as a terms of skilled ac um, action, ability and execution. Uh, the word aesthetic refers to we, that which you have already noted, to experience as appreciation, perceiving and enjoying. It denotes the consumer's rather than the producer's standpoint. It is gusto, taste. And as with cooking, overt skillful action is on the side of the cook who prepares, while taste is on the side of the consumer, as in gardening and the householder enjoys the finished product. These very illustrations um, are the relationship that exists in having experience between doing and undergoing. Indicates the distinction between aesthetic and artistic, which cannot be pressed so far as to become a separation. Perfection and execution cannot be measured or defined in terms of execution. It implies those who perceive and enjoy the product that is executed. The cook prepares food for the consumer, and the um, measure of that value of which it is prepared is found in consumption. Mere perfection and execution, judged its own term in isolation, can probably be attained better by a machine than human art. By itself, it is most technique. That is, the great artists are uh, the first ranks of technicians. Just as they are great performers, the piano are not great aesthetically, as the sergeant is not a great painter. Craftsmanship can be artistic in the final sense, they must be loving. They must be care deeply for the subject upon which the skill is exercised. Then jumping ahead, the aesthetic or undergoing phase of experience is receptive. It involves surrender. But adequate yielding of the self is possible only through a controlled activity that must be well, must be very intense. In much of our intercourse with our surroundings, we withdraw, sometimes from fear, if only from expending unduly our store of energy, sometimes from preoccupation with other matters, as is the case in recognition. Perception is an act of going out of energy in order to receive, not a withholding of energy. To steep ourselves is a subject matter we must first plunge into. We are then only passive to the scene. It overwhelms us. For lack of ans answering activity, we do not perceive that which bears us down. We must summon energy and push back the responsive key in order to take in. For to perceive, the beholder must create his own experience. And his creation must undergo the same um, relationship compared to that the original producer went. They are not the same in a literal sense, 
With the perceiver as with the artist, there must be an ordering of the elements of which the whole form, although not in detail, the same with the process of organization of the creator of the work consciously experienced. Without an act of recreation, the object is not perceived as a work of art. The art is selected, simplified, clarified, abridged, condensed, according to his interests. The beholder must go through these operations according to his point of view and interests. In both the act of abstraction, that is extraction of what is significant, takes place. In both, there is a um, comprehension of its literal signification. That is a gathering together of details and particulars physically scattered into an experiential whole. There is work done on the part of the precipitant as there is on the part of the artist. The one who is too lazy, idle, or inundated in convention to perform this work will not see or hear. His appreciation will be a mixture of scraps of learning with conformity to norms of conventional admiration and with confused, if not genuine, emotional excitation. Experiencing, like breathing, is a rhythm of intaking and outgivings. Their succession is punctuated by made a rhythm by existence of intervals, periods in which one phase is seizing, another is incoherent or preparing. William James aptly compared the course of conscious experience to the alternate flights and perching of a bird. The flights and perching are intimately connected with one another. They are not so many unrelated lighting, lighting succeeded by a number of equally unrelated hoppings. Each resting takes place in experience and undergoing in which is absorbed and taken home to the consequences of prior doings. And unless the doing is that of other capricious and seer routine, each doing carries in itself meanings that have been extracted and conserved. As with the advance of an army, all gains from what have already been effected are periodically consolidated and always with a view to which what must be done next. If we move too rapidly, we get away from the base of supplies of crude meaning and the experience is flustered, thin and confused. If we dawdle too long after having extracted net value, experiences perish. Thank you. This ends the Truth to Power Show. Write to truth to power show at gmail.com. Be guests on upcoming episodes. Thank you very much.